You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning as we start a new series that will last a good portion of the fall called False Faith false faith. And in just a minute, I'll read the passage from Matthew 7 that uh, for a long time was really disturbing to me, and even now is, is quite a sobering passage, but I think it's a, a fitting one for us to start with this morning. Uh, while you guys are finding your way to Matthew chapter 7, if you've got a Bible with you, or maybe you're opening uh, the app on your phone to the sermon notes section where you can follow along with the message notes this morning, I just want to remind you, I've shared with you before, but it's a a good segue into uh, the message in the series this morning of a conversation I had uh, with a server at a restaurant some years back that I knew um, to some degree, but uh, early on I would go there and work sometimes, and he was coming to the table, and he saw my Bible open and some other books while I was working on some stuff, and he said, hey, are are you a Christian? I said, yes. He said, hey, I am too, but not, uh, not a practicing one right now. Um, And I thought in my mind, and eventually uh, we had this conversation, there's no such thing as a non-practicing Christian. What he was saying is that I am a Christian culturally. I am a Christian culturally, which is to say very little about being a genuine, gospel-centered, Holy Spirit-indwelled, New Testament believer. But it's a question that I think needs to go before all of us this morning. Are we a Christ-centered, gospel-formed, Holy Spirit-indwelled, New Testament believer, or are we a cultural Christian? Cultural Christians' lives are defined by the acceptance of an inadequate gospel that leads to a false faith. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, a passage familiar to many of you on the tail end of Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. I'm going to read through it and pray for us, and then we'll move on this morning. Let's read beginning with verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone, says Jesus, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that great day of judgment, that every single one of us and every human who's ever drawn breath will face. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation 
on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we sit underneath your word, I pray that the the text before us would be a sobering one to all of us in here this morning, to all of us as we have been long exposed to the gospel message of Jesus Christ and are so accountable. God, I pray that it will be a sobering one to us who live among hundreds of thousands of people who believe themselves comfortably to be Christian and yet whose lives show absolutely no fruit of such a commitment and transformation. God, as we come before you this morning, we come offering you nothing but the need of sinners. God, nothing but we pray open hearts and open minds, ears to hear by your mercy, by your grace, minds to believe, wills to act. God, wherever we are this morning, will you meet us? Draw near to us. Show yourself glorious and good. Awaken our hearts this morning, Lord, with both an unconfused view of your righteousness and holiness and an unconfused view of your mercy and your love. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' sufficient, victorious, and beautiful name. Amen. You and I live uh, today in an, in an interesting place and in an interesting age. We happen to live at the convergence point of two unique cultural realities. One is the Bible Belt, which is very much its own cultural reality with its own gravitational pulls and influences and values and ideologies. And the other is suburbia. Suburbia. Uh, The suburban landscape that we live and move in on the northwestern side of metro Atlanta uh, was not really a thing in human history until around 50 years ago. It started late, late 40s, early 50s, but as a, as a real reality and as a, a viable option where people were choosing to live, we're about 50 years into this suburban experiment, 50 years out of all of human history. And suburbia has its own rules, its own values, its own challenges, its own idols. And it's as I was thinking and praying over these things months ago, thinking about where God has placed us to live out the gospel, where God has placed us to raise our families, where God has placed us to be witnesses for Christ, that I I, I reached again for a couple of books that I highly recommend you. You'll hear me quoting them throughout this series. Both are small, both are very accessible. Um, 
One at least is quite startling. They both are very helpful. The first is The Unsaved Christian by Dean Acera. The Unsaved Christian by Dean Acera. Both are out in our bookstore if you want to grab a copy of them. And, and Sarah's whole premise there is that there's a need for an awakening among cultural Christians to actually be saved, to be redeemed by the gospel. He's a young man who grew up in the Bible Belt and upon leaving seminary kind of had his head hung as some of his friends in seminary were leaving to, to plant churches and to do work and to uh, do missions in parts of the country that are known um, for their high rates of, of unchurched population. And one of them hugged him before he was leaving, and he said, uh, man, I'm envious of where you're going. And the guy looked back at Dean and said, are you kidding me? You're going to plant a church in the Bible Belt. That's the hardest place in America to do true gospel ministry. People where I'm going know they're not saved, and they don't care. So it's an easy place to start. Where you're going, everyone thinks they're saved. And that's a difficult, difficult place to work. And it, it sparked a fire in Sarah that led him uh, to a new zeal to live where he now lives just south of the Georgia state line in Florida and to do ministry in the Bible Belt, seeing the Spirit awaken the conscience of people who've long been asleep to the truth of the gospel yet felt saved. The second book is uh, entitled Finding Holy in the Suburbs. Finding Holy in the Suburbs by Ashley Hales. And Ashley uh, does a good job in there of defining the uniqueness of suburbia, the unique idols that drive us in suburbia. And I tell you this morning, don't deceive yourself. Don't believe, no matter how real your commitment to Christ is this morning, that these two major cultural influences, the Bible Belt and suburbia, don't influence your thinking in ways that are not biblically true and are not faithful to the gospel. I think any of us would be deluded to believe that this morning. In The Unsaved Christian, and Sarah writes this, in the Bible Belt, in the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians, but have no concept of the severity of sin, necessity of repentance, message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. I can tell you from having spent many years ministering and pastoring in the Bible Belt, he is absolutely true, absolutely correct. He goes on to say, they think they're just fine with God, and God is fine with them because they aren't atheists, and they've been to church before as a kid. I would add to that, go randomly at times now, maybe supporting their grandparents. It's almost like you have to get them lost so you can actually get them saved. I think Sarah's on to something here. I think we're, we're not a group of people that haven't heard most of our life in our day and time about this God of love and acceptance. What we've not heard a lot about in the context of him being a God of love is that he's also a holy and a righteous God who cannot and will not stand sin and rebellion from his creatures, from human beings. You and I have a terminal disease that we can't deal with ourselves. No amount of essential oils is going to help. 
You can have all the vegan foods you want. I was looking at one of our cleaners yesterday, and it said vegan. It's a spray cleaner. What a bunch of weirdos we are now. I thought good so that when we drink it, it will be healthy for us. Vegan cleaner, who cares? I want a cleaner that's so strong if somebody walks by while you're using it without the proper gear on, they're going to pass out. You can do all the yoga you want. You can eat all the Greek yogurt you want. And you still have a terminal issue that will stay with you beyond death, right up to judgment before a holy and just God. And Sarah goes on and writes, cultural Christians, cultural Christians are the suburban cul-de-sac folks who hosting a cookout, who are hosting a cookout to watch the game. They believe in God. And, I, and I've got, let me pause right here in the quote and say, I have often heard from ladies whose hearts are broken over the lack of faith their husbands show and lack of commitment to Christ. And they'll say, oh, he's a believer. He believes in God. And I just have to say, dear deluded sister, so does Satan. Believing in God is not what makes you a believer by the witness of the New Testament. It's believing in the atoning, finished, satisfying, complete, victorious work of Christ and trusting it for your life that makes you a believer. And Sarah goes on, they take seriously their Christian traditions, prayer in schools, nativity scenes, and Linus reciting the story of the birth of Christ during a Christmas Brown a Charlie Brown Christmas. I know we've ruined that for you here by unpacking a lot of what that first Christmas was actually like. The Jesus of cultural Christianity is a type of historical imaginary friend. Historical imaginary friend with some magic powers for good luck and sentimentality. Amazing Grace is a song known from memory, but why that grace is amazing cannot be explained. You know why it can't be explained? Because they think they're good enough already. Some of us in here think we're good enough already. What's so amazing about grace? I don't know. I'm pretty legit. I'm educated. I've got a good wife. I've climbed the corporate ladder. I give a little to my church. I make sure I'm there on the major Sundays of Christmas and Easter and Mother's Day. Sometimes if my wife gets me up and good gifts are coming, I'll go on Father's Day. I don't even know if Father's, is Father's Day a Sunday. You guys don't know either. Some of you do. Okay. The God of cultural Christianity is the big man upstairs. And whether or not he is holy and people have sinned against him is irrelevant. Now you tell me this doesn't describe Mr. and Mrs. Average where we live today. And part of my hope for this series is not only that God will awaken us to the reality of a Jesus-centered life formed by the beauty and the power of the gospel itself, but that by His Spirit, He will awaken us to the mission field that's before us. Because as long as you and I really believe the, de the deception of Satan that basically everyone around us is already at least nominally Christian, we will live comfortably ineffective and unmoved 
for mission. Friends, they're not. They're lost in their sin. And so lost in their sin that they're confident of their standing before God and will find it insulting when anyone suggests otherwise. Let's look at a few truths about false faith that we can find very clearly from God's word, even from a single passage like Matthew chapter 7. The first is this, that false faith has been a danger from the very beginning. False faith, obviously as opposed to true and genuine biblical faith, has been a danger from the very beginning. Note here that before even the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is warning his earliest followers of the deceptiveness of a false faith. It is a faith, right? But it's a counterfeit faith. It looks a lot like the real one on the surface. This is what makes it so insidious. But when closely examined, ultimately, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but ultimately, as well, this is why community matters so much. Because I'm not just to examine my own faith. I'm to be in a community of brothers and sisters in Christ who can look at me and sit me down if need be and say, friend, I have to have a conversation with you. I wonder if you really know Jesus. From the very beginning, it's been a danger. Jesus says clearly, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. What's he saying? Not everyone who confesses me with their mouth, not everyone who claims to be a follower of mine is actually a follower of mine. He wants us to hear these words this morning. And he says this out of his goodness and his mercy and his love for men and women made in his image. This is not an angry, vindictive Jesus here. A Jesus excited to send people to hell. People go to hell because we spend a lifetime choosing it. And in eternity would choose nothing different. We have no love and adoration for God. We have no delight in him. He's not our treasure. He's not beautiful to us. It's not the vindictiveness of God. It's the goodness, the justice, the mercy of God that deals and will eternally deal with sin in the only righteous way. And it's not just Jesus' earlier followers. If you'll note the stark admonition of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, a hugely gifted church. This is a church that was cool. They had all the fog machines. Their stage setups were awesome. They changed them out with each series. The only people on stage were good-looking. They were highly gifted. There wasn't anything the church in Corinth couldn't do. But they were messy, too. Extremely messy. And they'd been prodding the Apostle Paul some about his gospel and his apostleship. And he answers, and then he flips it. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you 
Unless, of course, you fail the test. This is a significant word, church. This is a significant word. This verse turns on two imperatives. Examine and test. Examine and test. Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying here rather, take seriously your confession that Jesus is Lord. Examine what you say you believe. And test it. And he's saying this to men and women in the church. And I'll tell you that in the church, it's where our faith is to be examined and tested. Around people who know the real deal. By the grace and mercy of God. Another quote from Sarah here. Who says, cultural Christianity is a mindset that places one's security, that places one's security in heritage, values, rites of passage, such as a first communion or a baptism from childhood, and a generic deity rather than the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. In other words, Rather than the acknowledgement that my sin is so deep, deeper than I ever, ever could have imagined. And Jesus' work, his redemptive work, is more effective and more complete and more whole and more mine by the grace of of God than I could ever dream I'm not saying, but at some year, I invited Jesus into my heart. In fact, I fear that one of the chronic chants of those who never knew Jesus will be, but I invited you into my heart. They'll say, but I didn't tell you to do that. Anywhere, anywhere in my word. But I did it. Or we'll say, hey, you know, my whole family's Christian. We've been in church. My Granddaddy was a deacon. My uncle was a pastor. I grew up in Sunday school. I got all the stars for good attendance. At the end of each quarter, I got a cookie. A little KJV, New Testament that I never read. They're going to trust in that. They're going to trust in the, the prayers around family tables. The high Christian times throughout the year where they gather as a family. They're going to put their trust in their values. They're going to say, didn't we oppose the the secularization of America, Lord? Didn't we oppose them removing prayer from school? And on and on it will go. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the most prominent evangelical preacher of the 20th century, said this, for many years I thought I was a Christian describing his life as a young man, when in fact I was not. It was only later, later that I came to see that I had no inner Christian. In other words, there, there, was, there was no work of the Spirit in his heart from which he was living and became one. What I needed was preaching that would convict me of sin, but I never heard this. The preaching we had was always based on the assumption that we were all Christians. Can I just tell you, friends, I never assume when we gather on a Sunday that everyone sitting out here is a Christian. And I would say that assumption 
if anywhere should not be valid, should not be valid here in the Bible Belt. Well, false faith has not just been a danger from the beginning. False faith shows itself so clearly in the fact that it is transactional and that it exalts the individual. It's transactional and it exalts the individual. Look back at what Jesus says. In verse 22, he knows how it's going to go down on that final day. He says, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Now listen, what's going on here is both the exaltation of the individual. Didn't we do these things? Aren't we the center of this? And I will tell you, a lot of preaching that passage that passes for biblical preaching and gospel-centered preaching is little more than individual-centered, inadequate gospel teaching that tells you that everything in the Bible is about you. Everything that God has done has been because you were so awesome, he would die for you. And I'll just say, church, that is not a faithful biblical theology. The Bible tells us everything is about him and not us. That the gospel is to his glory, by his grace and mercy, for the goodness of carving out a people with whom he will dwell again eternally in the new heavens and earth as he did once in the garden. And his redeeming of individuals is his blessed joy in service of creating a people with whom he'll dwell. But listen, there's more here. Part of what they're saying here is we're owed entry. There's a transaction here, Lord. We did things in your name, and now you owe us. What's the deal, Jesus? We didn't only do these things. We did them in your name. So step aside. And Jesus is warning us early, early, hey, the gospel, you better hope it's not transactional, and you better hope it's not based on you. Thankfully, it is neither of those, transactional or based on you. I have to do from memory, I'll, I'll rewatch it and come back better next time, but there's a, a great bit that Alistair Begg did, I think at a preacher's conference, where he, he imagines the criminal beside Jesus as he stands in glory, and they're like, whoa, whoa. Why aren't you coming in here? Have you been baptized? No. Do you confess orthodox doctrine? He's like, what's doctrine? Well, have you been on any missionary journeys? I don't know what that means. Well, why are you here? And he says, because he said I could come. And that's it. That's it. Sinclair Ferguson said, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. There are a few things that I think haunt a pastor's soul more 
than, than watching people week in and week out who are active in your church. But when it comes to the point of showing genuine, spirit-empowered, sacrificial faith, show no evidence of it month after month and year after year. While promoting everything, because see, we get to see everything on social media now. What a messy hothouse of human life that place is. Trust none of it. And it's terrifying. And you pray and you wonder, God, will you get their attention? Maybe we think we're good enough. Ashley Hales, again, in Finding Holy in the Suburbs, says, there's also a particularly Christian version of the self-actualization narrative. She's, she's commenting on this, uh, this current theme in our culture today that says, the real me, for, for me to be who I'm created to be, I have to be able to fully express and live out any feeling I have. And if you don't validate that, and you don't support that, and you don't champion that for me, then you're a bigot and a criminal. And you should be silenced and put outside of polite society and social community. And Hale says there's a particularly Christian version of this, this kind of self-actualization narrative. It's found in hearing how the salvation story revolved around me and God's wonderful plan for my life. This story wound its way around us so that mission trips were validations for the goodness of a soul. This story found a liturgy in the hours of personal Bible study and puritanical evaluations of the dark nights of the soul. In other words, you know, God, why, why don't I feel your presence now? Why aren't you with me? It's not that these activities are wrong, but Christian piety, belief, and practice continue to be wrapped up in a narrative of the self where the I is the key to unlocking faith. Redemption is not, in fact, all about you. She's exactly right. It's not all about you. You know, when you look at Jesus' words here, what used to stun me as a young man about this passage is when he starts out in verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I remember even as a high school student reading that and, and thinking, that sounds like works-based salvation. And I didn't understand because what follows is like an, an absolute assault by Jesus on works-based salvation. And I couldn't put it together. I just wasn't far enough along theologically to understand that you and I cannot do the will of God without the empowering indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We're unable to. It doesn't matter what good stuff we do. We cannot do the will of the Father without the third person of the Godhead at work in our lives empowering us. That's part of why Jesus can say what he says on the tail end here because he says the Beatitudes in the beginning, which you look at and go, no one can live this way. And that's part of Jesus' point. It's to say that these things that are to characterize my followers are unnatural to man. They can't be created by human beings. They can't be willed about. They can only be produced by God's Spirit in our lives. This is 
part of why the church is so central to God's plan is to uh, stamp down and drive out this highly individualized version of life where everything is about me. Everything is about me. The third century bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, said he cannot have God for his father who is not the church for his mother. It's a strong statement from Cyprian. And just as an aside, right, it, it hasn't been colonialism that brought the gospel or Christianity to Africa. It's been there from just about the beginning, right? It was in Egypt by A.D. 50. It had spread down and become so strong by the 4th century that Ethiopia and Eritrea had, had made it their national religion. By the 4th century A.D., the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading across the continent of Africa. Whatever would they have done without our 20th century missionary zeal? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, as Jesus is preparing for his coming crucifixion the next day, says this to his closest followers. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must Love one another. That's an astounding little phrase there, as I have loved you. You want to do some meditating on Scripture later, maybe this evening? Sit down with your Bible and write that out and just ask yourself, how, in, in what ways has Jesus loved us? I think as you begin to list those out, you'll find that it is impossible to be a Christian by yourself. Because Jesus puts this as a definitive command of his followers, and it cannot be lived out except in close community relationally to others. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, by this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. That's why all the church hopping and all the church splitting and all the church leaving is such a, a pathetic, disastrous um, sinful witness to a watching culture of what it means to be Christ followers because we're called to love one another. And in love comes the demanded practice of mercy and forgiveness and bearing with one another. We've talked about how honest scripture is. Sometimes that's all you can do with somebody, right? Is bear with them. I am bearing with you. This is what Jesus has commanded me to do. It's like in your own household there are seasons where with someone in your family. You're simply bearing with them. Our three older kids have passed the 11, 12-year-old, 13-year-old stage, but they all sort of shed old skin at that time, and a new reptile comes out. <laughs> and there are times where you go, I don't, I don't, one, I don't even know who that human being is, and I'm not sure it's human. And parents, there are seasons where your children simply bear with you. They bear with you. We cleave to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We forgive. We extend mercy and grace. We assume the best. 
We sacrifice for one another. We overlook things. We speak truth and love to one another. And the world watches and Jesus says, this is how people know you're my disciples. This is how. It's not by the fact that you don't drink. It's not by the fact that you vote this way or that way. It's by your love for one another. It's a much simpler and much harder standard. Because it's a lot easier for me to say, they ticked me off. So I'm going down to First Baptist, you know, Peach Springs. And I'm going to stay there until somebody ticks me off. And then I'm going to go to Fish World, Cobbler Creek Baptist. And I'm going to stay there until they tick me off. Because I am right in all my thinking and my preferences. I didn't plan to say any of that. But you see here that community is central to Jesus. It's central to the witness of the gospel. The way that we love each other demonstrates to a watching world that we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus. You can't do this thing on your own. It's not transactional. It's not individualized. Are you called as an individual to make a decision for Jesus? Absolutely. But the the confirmation of that reality having taken place in your life and living that out is absolutely centered, centered in community. That's why I'm so grateful and so excited to see so many of you starting the journey. And and this morning was a a beginning. I know some of you, it'll feel like a culmination. Next Sunday, you'll be like, whoo, I went last Sunday. Um, But this is the start of adult Bible study groups. I'm so excited to see you guys up there doing it. Hey, and I know, right? First morning, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too awkward, it's too early. But you came anyway. And God blesses and honors that. And just so you know, we as a staff will be working with your leaders week in and week out to make it uh, a a little more comfortable, a little less awkward. um, To the degree that we can equip you guys so that that hour is meaningful and that what takes place there is the connecting of souls and lives by God's Spirit that outside of here become Christ-centered friendships. That 20 years from now you say, I met some of the best friends I've ever had in our Bible study groups at Lost Mountain Baptist Church. Finally, false faith leads inevitably to destruction. It leads inevitably to destruction. This is not hard to see. Jesus says in verse 23, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. That's that's a profound statement. Jesus is saying that to, to assume his name and live out a sort of cultural faith, which is all they're doing here, is actually to do evil across a lifetime and then to stand before him in judgment and expect to be part of his kingdom people throughout eternity based on what I've done. Not one of them pleads the blood of Jesus, pleads faith or trust in Jesus. He says, no, no, they're going to plead their own works and expect movement on God's part from that. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, we'll talk more about that, but I want you to to note in verse 25, Jesus says, for people that that do that, that that listen and receive and then build their lives on it, the rain comes down, the streams rise and the winds blow and they beat against the house, yet it doesn't fall because 
It had its foundation on the rock. Not because it was an awesome house. Not because it was well painted. Not because it was built with legitimate two-by-fours instead of the little sneaky ones that builders use. But because of what it was built on. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. And this house stands obviously for a life. What are you building your life on this morning? What would your dollars and your, and your social media feeds and your time commitments, what would they reveal to a judge looking at you about the values of your life, about what you're building your life on? And then obviously, the life who doesn't receive and put into practice the truth of Jesus. When the storm comes, the storms of this life, or maybe you skate through this life kind of okay, and the storm of judgment is the one you face. It falls with a great crash. It doesn't just fall. It falls with a great crash. One more quote from the unsaved Christian by Sarah. He says, while no religion... While no religion on a survey might be rising, this has been known for the last 15 years or so as the rise of the nuns. They're not this religion, that religion, or the other. They're just none. While no religion on a survey might be rising, politicians still invoke vague language about God in their speeches to appease the millions of Americans who get goosebumps singing God Bless America at baseball games. This God they are singing of, however, functions more like a national mascot than a God who demands our faith and repentance. The church must awaken to the reality that this is a false gospel with eternal consequences. We've got to love our neighbors enough to stop assuming that they're Christian. You've got to love your coworkers, your classmates, the people that you run into at the places that you frequent, you've got to love them enough, and might I add, love God enough to stop assuming that they're Christian and to stop being afraid of their response. If God should lead you into a moment of conversation where you get to ask them about that. So what's the answer? What is the answer this morning to the false faith of cultural Christianity that so pervades suburbia and especially suburbia in the Bible Belt. Church, it's pretty simple here. It's building our lives on Jesus. It's what he calls hearing and doing and what fleshed out through the New Testament looks like repentance and belief, confession, and baptism into his church. And we know baptism isn't central for redemption. But it is our public profession. It is the public confession, if you will, of our mouths. That Jesus is our Lord. When by God's mercy we can know ourselves as sinners. As those whose spirits are by nature at war against God. Man, we want to be our own gods, don't we? Don't we want to call our own shots? Don't we want to demand of God timelines and provision? 
answers to prayer. There's something broken in every one of us in here. Every single one. Do you know what it is in your own life? Can you confess your brokenness before God? These aren't just whoopsie daisies. This is sin. And there is no answer for sin but the atoning work and blood of Jesus. Repent, believe, confess. Be baptized as a public witness to that. And get on about building your life on Jesus. His command was clear, follow me. Not invite me into your heart. Follow me. Fleshed out, as I said, through the New Testament, that looks like repentance and belief and baptized membership into the church. Let me finish this morning with a final quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. And have you experienced that? Have you experienced amazement that God has forgiven you? Not for what you once did, but for who you are this morning. Repentance is a continual posture and attitude for genuine believers. Have you experienced what, what John Wesley called the strange warming of his heart when by God's grace he finally came to faith after years of believing he was a Christian in the first place but not knowing Jesus? Have you come to know what Hudson Taylor, that great 19th century British missionary to China who founded the China Inland Mission, which is still there and active today. Have you come to know what he came to know that day in that barn when he was reading his Bible, thinking he knew God, but never actually at peace? And he said he discovered then, by God's mercy, the finished work of Christ. What Taylor's saying is that he discovered then that it actually wasn't about him. It's about Christ and what Christ had done for him. Do you know that this morning? Or God forbid, do you still think you're fine? In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us and our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. Part of, part of why we receive offering every week is that it's one way that believers for 2,000 years have responded to God faithfully and had a practical, tangible demonstration that their life is not about them, but about God. That all that we've been given is a gift from God every single time it enters our account or our life. And that a portion of it is to go back to Him for His glory, for the furtherance of His work. And hear me, for the protection of our own hearts. As those offering buckets come by and we receive offering, you can drop in your giving envelopes if you give on Sunday morning. Instead of throughout the week online or by text, you can drop in your connection cards, letting us know commitments that you've made or prayers that you'd like us to, um, to engage on your behalf this week as a staff. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your words would be strong and powerful in our hearts this week. God, that this passage, that, that in your goodness and in your love for us, 
as your treasured possessions. You give to us to warn us not to take for granted who we are in you. God, but to examine and test our faith. God, to live that out in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Have your way with us this morning, Lord Jesus. And if there be any in this room, Father, who have not come to know themselves as sinners, I pray that by your Spirit you would cause the blinders to fall from their eyes this very moment. And they would understand through conviction that only your Spirit can bring their own depravity. And God, that they would cry out for you. Cry out for the redemption that only Jesus provides. In whose name I pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.